Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, March 26th installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Malone, and I've been covering this town longer than anybody. I'm here with our special contributor, Scott Budman, business and tech reporter for NBC Bay Area. And once again, we're creating this podcast from our respective homes via Zoom. Uh, our producer is Jordan Henderson. Our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove. And our host for this podcast, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, Scott, let's, there's one company we got to talk about this week because it's suddenly big time in the news. And the question is, what does it all mean? Intel, the legendary icon of the Valley, Intel, is going through some massive changes, apparently. So... From what I gathered, the new, the new CEO has come in to turn the place around. Uh, Pat Gelsinger uh, has grabbed the reins in a big way. He's going to invest $20 billion on two new chip-making facilities in Arizona. Um, and he says live events are coming back in October. And the result of that announcement was stock prices went up. That's big news coming from a company we haven't heard much good news about for several years now. What do you think? You know, I think it's either a short-term fix or an interesting way to go back to what they always did well, which was spend money and build and, uh, you know, put on events. And, and so you've got a CEO who's extremely well-respected in the Valley. Uh, he's, he's got this sort of young mentality. And remember, we had talked in weeks past, oh, what Steve will Jobs Steve Jobsian kind of moved. Yeah, you know, to say we're not going to sit back and be the legend, you know, you introduce them as, as a legendary company and they're like, no, no, we're not going to have any of that. We've got to move forward with strength, with aggressive moves. Um, and uh, it just so happens the aggressive moves are what, you know, some say got Intel in the problem in the first place, spending a lot of money on old fashioned making chips. But then again, what else are they going to do? Their spinoffs into consumer devices haven't worked in the past. Um, you know, servers, that's a tough business to get into. So maybe they have to go back to their core strength, which is new chips. They will be creating some new jobs. And, you know, the Wall Street reaction in, in the last week has been mixed, but right off the bat, it was, hey, good for Intel. They're coming out swinging with a new CEO and new plans to move forward. Yeah, well, I wonder if Wall Street's reaction was initially do something. And now they're doing something. Now, now they're beginning. We're all beginning in, in repose afterwards in the aftermath of these announcements to say how good of a move is it really? And so, interestingly, from two of our old friends, almost simultaneously, and I want to give you two viewpoints. Okay, the first one comes from Bob Grove back in Massachusetts, and he writes to dig out of their hole. They seem to be falling back on their old manufacturing abilities. With a worldwide chip shortage, they are focusing on the earlier generation chips they make successfully and are in such high demand by car makers, et cetera. It's an interesting strategy on a number of levels. Obviously, they'll keep working on seven nanometer and five nanometer chips, but it looks like they're re willing to rebuild their company short term as a supplier of much needed chips. Okay, so that's a fairly optimistic point of view about Intel trying to revive itself by going back to basics, going back you know, a generation and just becoming a mass producer of stuff. Okay. He has, he thinks it's an interesting roll of the dice because there's so much competition at the high end. So maybe a genius move to fight it out for a while and focus on profits while you're, 
re-gearing the company to, you know, go for the swing for the fences again. Okay, now Rich Goldman, another old friend of this show who's been a listener from day one. Rich is a former um, synaptic executive, uh, synopsis executive, I'm sorry. Uh, he's been a consultant to the chip industry for many, many years. And he thinks it's a dumb idea. And here's why. Foundry is a pure customer service business. Intel sucks at that. This two, the strategy to sell excess capacity as Foundry, then use the capacity for themselves in uptimes. What customer wants to be a victim of that? Guaranteed to have your supply cut off when you need it the most. Uh, tragically, Intel is now a technology laggard. Say goodbye to leading edge customers like Apple, NVIDIA, and Qualcomm. Say goodbye to sales with high margins on the leading edge. So uh, I hope Pat Gelsinger focuses on Intel getting back their manufacturing mojo so they can once again be, uh, fulfill their once clear destiny as the guardians of Moore's law. So there's two very distinct points of view. And I think reading between the lines in all this, it's not a bad move right now. It's pretty smart. You're gonna build, you're gonna build capacity. You're gonna build two new fabs at 10 billion a piece. I mean, that's pretty impressive investment, which is what you have to do now. The question is, if he does this, somewhere down the line, he's gotta make the turn. He either goes back to being a great innovator, Intel is a great innovator in an in a increasingly tough market, or it just becomes a contract fab company, uh, which it's never really been good at. I mean, people forget that in the early 80s, Intel had terrible yield rates. It almost killed the company. Their manufacturing was lousy. Their design was good. And it took Craig Barrett coming in with his famous copy exactly movement where he said, we're going we're gonna to be the McDonald's of semiconductor manufacturing. And they literally had rules like we're going to have a test facility. If you wore a red dress today and yield went up, you wear a red dress for the rest of your career at Intel. If you, if you took a bathroom break at 1014, tomorrow you take it at 1014 until we figure all this out. Uh, that's what turned Intel around and kind of gave him a reputation as a manufacturer. But, you know, the guys, the old timers say, these guys aren't that good at manufacturing. Now they're going to be a manufacturer. What do you think? Well, I don't know. You're right. The short term is there's a big chip shortage. It's affecting a lot of industries, a lot of tech industry, the automotive industry. And, uh, you know, who better to crank out a bunch of chips than Intel? They have the billions of dollars to spend. They have the manpower to put there. Uh, but you're right. Long term, who knows what what happens to a company that is kind of going back to its roots uh, and stumbled while sticking to those roots. So it may be a short term move, but Intel had to do something. Uh, you know, some of the companies you mentioned. Is it one of these deals that it's going to bring big profits, stock value is going to go up, but it's a deal with the devil that, you know, why do you work for Intel? You work for Intel because it was the coolest, really hard tech company on the planet. You were doing cutting edge stuff. The rest of the electronics world depended upon you. You defined each step of Moore's law. And now, you're working for a company that's going to be making, you know, speaking of McDonald's, making chips for Happy Meals. I mean, is this the career that you wanted? Why don't you just go to Qualcomm? You know, well, but all right, right. But the companies, 
Right, the companies you mentioned, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, even Apple, they're making chips for very specific things and they're doing great. Um, you know, a lot of the specialty chip makers really took market share away from Intel in the last 10, 15 years. And there's no reason to think that's not going to continue, but somebody's got to make the bulk of the chips. If you work for Qualcomm, what do you do? You make chips. If you work for NVIDIA, you make chips. If you work for Intel, you make chips. And they just have to get in there. Their missteps, i.e. missing the smartphone revolution, not being out front when it comes to- Well, we mentioned, I mentioned cars. Craig Barrett. It goes back to Craig Barrett's business decision to go after servers instead yeah. of going after smartphones. Right, and they that's what they have to overcome right now. And so can they make enough chips and get into some of these areas and try to bump aside the Qualcomm's and the NVIDIA's when it comes to phones and cars? I don't know. They've given those guys a lot of space and a lot of time to get established. And now uh, you're right. But for Intel to even survive, they had to do something. And no, maybe- I agree. I agree. It's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant move in one respect because I think Intel is going to see real profitability in a big way uh, in the years to come. Because there's some other factors as well. Keep in mind, where, where are most of the foundries? Far side of the Pacific Rim. What's going on over there? A resurgent, aggressive China. You know, there's going to be a lot of smart companies around the world are going to go, do we really want to put all of our chip fab, the heart of our products in South Korea or Taiwan right now when, you know, China's building aircraft carriers and making noises all over the, you know, the, 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 the ocean out there, the sea. There's, and why not just get a domestic company we can depend upon that's got a, a good reputation and go with them, give them some of our business. So I, I, I feel like, and the feds too. The one thing I didn't read, but uh, Goldman mentioned was they're gonna get a lot of military business because a domestic mass producer of chips with two giant $10 billion new fabs, uh, the military is gonna love that uh, to have a domestic source like that. So I think, I think it's a brilliant idea and it's a gutsy call by Gelsinger. My, my only concern is when you go down that path, if you start trailing too far away from the cutting edge or dragging too far, be, lagging too far behind, you can't come back. You can never come back. And even if you want to, you may have lost the intellectual talent to enable you to do that anymore. So, I mean, it's gonna be interesting to watch. I wanna see how much money they still set aside for R&D. I mean, remember Andy Grove during the, during the, the, the 2000 recession, the collapse, the bubble burst, he spent more money on R&D. You know, Intel always doubled down during hard times and that's how they won the race. Let's see if he does it uh, this time around because I think that's that day's coming pretty soon. I agree. Okay, well, you know, you hate to see a great company, you know, I, I, I've died a thousand deaths watching the fate of HP. You know, I, I, I would hate to see it happen to Intel now. I cheered when AMD came back. You know, it's great to see these old line companies with legendary stories revivifying. So I hope he does it. You know, I think a lot of people are pulling for him. Okay, next, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. They're back. You know, it, I just heard on the television, somebody said they come back every three months. They make the same presentation. Congress doesn't do anything. What's the point? 
Well, I don't think these hearings are for <clears throat> Congress to do anything yet. Um, but I think this one yesterday was was more interesting for a lot of people because instead of the antitrust question, are you too big? And people just aren't worried about that. Clearly, investors aren't worried. Employees aren't worried. Not all that many people are worried about companies getting too big. I mean, look at this. We just talked about a company that's been struggling for the last decade, Intel, throwing $20 billion at something. We're not worried about big money being passed around at this point. But if these companies did indeed have a role in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, people are all of a sudden kind of interested, like, whoa, social media is in late enabling these people to, uh, to do these, these violent acts and spread all this misinformation. That's where people are interested because they're saying, hey, is this information being spread to me and my kids? You know, that sort of thing. And that's where it got interesting. And so you had the, the men and women grilling the companies and other than sort of a, a week, yeah, we had something to do with it from Jack Dorsey. They really didn't get the buy-in they wanted and the admissions of guilt that I think the whole thing was was set up to do. Uh, you know, Sundar Pichai wouldn't admit it. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't admit it. Yeah, well, obfuscated, um, obfuscated, obfuscated. Zuckerberg, that one was weird because it was like, no, there's no indication that our algorithms rot kids' brains when there's all sorts of research out there, you know, we, it's literally rewiring children's brains. We're no, we're not manipulative. We're a happy social network. So that's Zuckerberg's, you know, deal. I don't think anybody on earth believes him, but he says it, you know, with that robot face and it, it are you going to argue? Dorsey's interesting. The Unabomber was interesting because he essentially said, yeah, we did screw up on things. We did censor the Hunter Biden story from the New York Post right when it would have had an impact on the election. Yeah, they probably did help organize the January uh, insurrection on the Capitol on our pages. Uh, you know, sorry. <laughs> I don't really know what he, he, he didn't. He said, we're basically apolitical. We based the, um, uh, the Hunter Biden story on the fact that some of the information appeared to be hacked, and that was a mistake. I mean, he seems to be actually coming out and saying what he thinks, while the other two guys, man, they're doing the corporate voice. They got it down. And Congress, it, Congress is getting angrier. I don't think they're angry enough at these guys. But I noticed this time, you know, the assault on the Capitol, they could understand. All the stuff they've been talking about before, algorithms and everything else, Congress has no idea what's going on. This time, they actually had a topic they got, and it helped. You know, let's hope it continues. They need to be grilled, you know, all the time hard. Because, you know, let's face it, there are new ol oligarchs. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Sundar Pichai trying to hide behind, well, Google doesn't do it, YouTube does it, that's you know, come on, YouTube is owned by Google and they're, they're both very powerful. Uh, Zuckerberg has yeah. tried to dodge and weave in, in since the beginning of, of any of this. And it's just wearing thin. I think people, uh, and I mean, just average users like us are, are looking at this and saying, come on, we know if I'm a white supremacist, I no longer have to go down to a a dangerous meeting if I want to meet fellow white supremacists, all I have to do is log on to Facebook. Everybody knows that. 
And that makes a company that otherwise can do some good things and bring people together, et cetera, et cetera, very dangerous. And I think that that's one of those things that 95% of the people understand, but the companies will not fess up to, which means progress isn't being made at solving these problems that we all know are there. And Zuckerberg all but said, the way you can help fix this is to make us, make us actually more powerful oligarchs. I mean, his solution, his legislative solution was make us more successful and get rid of our competitors. You know? I mean, they've hinted <laughs> I don't at- I know what to say. Right, they've hinted <laughs> at willingness to have some regulation. But even Facebook is like, well, we've got this board of, you know, of, of these people that are looking, overseeing us, um, but it can't come from, from within. I mean, people recognize that this is all sort of a corporate charade. And I think the legislators know that. Um, they're starting to get more pointed with their questions. They're starting to understand what these companies do finally. Uh, but you're right, will it lead to any action? Um, it really depends. We now have, unlike the hearings on antitrust, these hearings yesterday could point to actual damage done because right. of messages spread, spread on social media. And I think that's a big distinction and an important decision, excuse me, distinction, if you want to take action. Um, so now I think they have the, the necessary elements to take action and we'll see if they do. Yeah, and, and these, these the most valuable companies in the history of the world, they're just gonna spread a little more money around inside the beltway, you know, in time for the, you know, the midterms. I, I'm not sure that there's any way to stop these companies except antitrust. And I don't even know if antitrust can stop these guys. I mean, it's a real, it's, it's, a, it's a dilemma right now. It's become a very paradoxical situation that, you know, raises some interesting questions about our nation at this point, our democracy. Um, okay, speaking of social networks, you know, I'm heartbroken because Chrissy Teigen has left, has left Twitter after what, 10 years? I think she was on it for 10 years. And she says it had nothing to do with the fact that I've been attacked recently, but of course it has everything to do with a narcissistic supermodel, you know, who wants to present this perfect family life uh, with her, you know, famous husband and her kids and all that. All of a sudden she's now a victim of old tweets coming up and she's been hammered the last year. I've been following this. I mean, she said some pretty vile things a long time ago. And, you know, the Twitter, the Twitterverse just went after her. And she sounds like she just can't take it anymore. And she's quitting. Yeah. Uh, and, and that says a couple of things about Twitter. A, I mean, you know, I, I still don't understand why people who, who, you know, choose to say bad things about Twitter are surprised when people are calling them out for saying yeah. bad things. But the Chrissy Teigen thing specifically, here's somebody who brought a lot of people a lot of joy. She brought a lot of people into the Twitter sphere because, hey, you know, if, if, if I wouldn't do this normally, I will because the superstar who's famous she's and funny. Million. Yeah. yeah, you know, she's, she's an actress. She's funny. She really, you know, engages with people. And to have her step away for any reason is, is I think, a, a dark mark on Twitter. Twitter needs to figure out how people like her and her fans can somehow hang around and still be funny and witty and, and, you know, dialogue back and forth, because think about how Twitter built itself on a couple of things. One was news and getting news out, but also the other was the idea that 
people like Chrissy Teigen are a little more accessible because we can back and forth with them yeah, to an like extent we on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if you're, you know, Chrissy Teigen, I remember the, the early days where who would get a million followers first? And, and I remember, you know, Aston Kutcher versus CNN. And I remember thinking the interesting thing about Aston Kutcher getting a million followers is not that he's so popular. It's that more so than any advertisement or, you know, interview on a talk show, he tweets out, here's my new movie. A million of his fans see that instantly. And now it's, you know, tens of millions if you're, you know, if you're famous. Yeah, it's and a brilliant, you just, brilliant marketing yeah. tool. However, yeah, and, why, doesn't, why doesn't Twitter allow you to erase your old tweets? I mean- Well, they do, you can they, erase them. They still survive in the, in the, in the, out there in the, in the universe or the web somewhere. But there's gotta be a way, you know, we just had the editor of Teen Vogue. Now I'm no great fan of Teen Vogue's articles or editorial policy, but this young lady looked like she was going to be the next big thing in, in magazine publishing. She was the future of magazines. She had to quit under a cloud for stuff she wrote as a teenager. You know, we talked about this last week, but we're seeing more bodies piling up because of this. And I don't see a solution except a social solution where we finally grow up and say, anything you did before you were 21 years old, you know, we erase your police records. Let's let's erase your stupidities too. I don't yeah, see any other any other answer. Right, uh, and yet trying to you can erase your stuff, but if someone has gotten a hold of it, they have a photo of it. I mean, these things live on, and I yeah. think this that there's not a solution to to this other than hey, don't don't put out these messages. That there's no need to say something racist if you know, if, if it's going to come back to you in five years, I mean, again, okay, you were young, you were stupid, but this is, this is now your record. This is now what follows you. So I would just tell young yeah, but people. You're, 15 and, years old, you're getting into, you're getting into hip hop music. You start using some of the language of hip hop, even though right. you're a white kid in suburbia and you do it for a year or two. And then you go, Oh, that's not really appropriate. I'm going to stop doing it. All and of maybe a you're a you're an evil racist, you know. Well, and, and there may be a backlash to that too. I mean, eventually we're going to realize, and, and we saw this in San Francisco with the naming of the schools. It was all these people you could no longer name schools after. And I remember Abe Lincoln came up and George Washington. And you know, eventually you realized if we go down this path of sensitivity, we can no longer name schools after people, period. And so we have to make that decision. Sure. You know, are we going to go back and, and be that sensitive or maybe just change the, the metric a little bit and say, we're not gonna name schools after people because people like you say, have done bad things throughout history. Um, and it's not like we're gonna stop now if we name them after modern people, people will find something, I guarantee it. Um, and so same with tweets, the best solution is don't no tweet anything stupid or insensitive, right. But But if you do, you've got to come up with a defense because it's going to come and track you. And, and, and until we backlash against that, it's going to happen for a little while. Well, I've, I've long been bothered by the historical arrogance that somehow we're the enlightened people, that we've learned how to live properly, and that everybody in the past is guilty of all of these crimes that we are now risen above, and, and the future will not look back upon us as having our own sets of moral crimes, uh, but will see us as 
you know, Athenian, you know, perfect people. You know, and, and I always ask myself, the people that are complaining about the past, if they lived in that past, would they be any different than the people they're complaining about? Because people in the past were not stupid. They were making moral and rational judgments. They may have made some wrong ones, a lot of wrong ones, but who's to say we aren't doing them right now too? And who are I we? Mean, his, right, historically speaking, every generation thinks they're the best one. Historically speaking, 100% of those generations have been wrong. So yeah. do the math. We're not going to change literally the, the course of the entire history of humankind. What we're doing now may be better and more sensitive in some ways, but in the future, someone's going to find fault with it. And, and we have to deal with that and understand it and maybe have some empathy with those who came before. Who knows? Okay, quick uh, news item. Bay Area homes are still surging, and especially now at the end of COVID. And it's like insane. The house in Dublin had 49 offers on it, and it went for $400,000 over its 1.7 million listing price. Dublin. Yeah. Well, look, we're uh, not at the end of COVID yet, but people are getting more optimistic. And yet yeah. with a, a shortage of uh, inventory on the market, real estate agents are telling me they're starting to see more multiple offers. Will that go away when the, the market you know, reopens completely? I don't know. But for now, it's still uh, very much a seller's market. Yeah. And I think real estate people are telling prospective buyers, there's a window coming up and all hell's going to break loose at a certain point after that opening. So you better get in right now. I mean, I think some of it's real estate agent marketing, but I also think there's an underlying, like you said, a shortage of inventory. Shortage of inventory and people, savings rates are up, which, which is interesting because usually yeah. that doesn't happen, but you know, especially during a recession, but because of the pandemic, uh, people have ended up saving money. So there's a lot of money on the sidelines from potential buyers to throw at homes. I also think potential for inflation. I mean, we're, we're spending so much money right now out of Washington that the chances of inflation are pretty high. A million dollar house sounds like an awful lot of money, but two years from now when inflation's at 8% and that house is going for 3 million bucks, you're a smart guy for having right. made the move. Okay, I wanna make a bet with you. I'll bet you a dollar. You take pick size. Google coming to downtown San Jose. So much this has been going on. There's so much ancillary building by developers and everything else getting ready for Google. And yet Google just got a green light to build up to 1.3 million square feet of new office space in Mountain View. Uh, a developer has doubled his housing plan for a site near Google in Mountain View. Is, Mountain, is Google actually gonna stay or are they gonna come down to San Jose too? I think both. I mean, yeah, I think both. Look, I mean, Google has been growing so fast and in so many different areas. Don't sleep on the East Coast and all these other places where Google is building as well. You would say, wow, the only thing that could stop Google from developing in places like its own home in Mountain View or San Jose would be, I don't know, maybe a combined whack of a deep recession and maybe throw in a global pandemic. Well, guess and what? Need, we have them both. And a, and a, and a species-ending meteorite. Right? I, I think yeah. we need the species-ending meteor, yeah, because Google is <laughs> at the, and we're again, we're not at the end of this pandemic or recession, but it's been rough for a lot of people, and Google is still throwing billions of dollars at sure. real estate. But nothing stops them at this point. Well, it seems like things are moving forward fast in Mountain View, and they aren't moving forward fast in San Jose. And I wonder if this is Google's backup. 
that if the city of San Jose, you know, screws around any longer, they'll just back out. So I will bet a dollar Google doesn't come to San Jose just to be devil's advocate. All right, and, and true, and, and okay, I'll, I'll take your bet. I think they come, but you're right. Not a global pandemic, not a global recession, not even a species changing meteor can stop them from coming to San Jose, but the San Jose City Council might be able to stop them. Yeah, yeah the plan. Ooh, good luck with that uh, when, when the job numbers come out. Yeah, good point, good point. Uh, Okay, real quick. Coherent got finally bought after a ugly battle between uh, uh, what I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the company. Two six, it's Roman numerals. Uh, one, and its stock slipped. Uh, Coherence uh, and, and Lumentum, which was really fighting for them, they went up, losing the deal, and Coherent uh, also lost. So it sounds like apparently they were cheering in the aisles at. Uh, Lumentum, the regular employees and investors, that they didn't get the coherent deal. So, you know, what a mess. I, I don't, I don't pretend to understand it. Uh, next, real quick. Okay, we got, we got to move fast. Our favorite company from two years ago that we had so much sport about, WeWorks. Yeah, at the top of the show, and you said we have to talk about the most important company in Silicon Valley. I mean, you talked about Intel. I thought you meant WeWork. Yeah, they're finally. Uh, Pulling the trigger as of this morning, they're going to go public via a SPAC. Um, that's rising from the dead. It, it shows that you can have a turnaround, but man, they put a lot of bodies on the street. They laid off something like 60% of their staff. They obviously got rid of Adam Newman, paid him and his wife a fortune. Um, this will always be a company that's, that's tagged with, I mean, these guys usually just go away. So the idea that they're still going to be around uh, they'll be closely watched, but um, what a disaster. What a complete disaster. And yet nine they're somehow billion, rising. Going out, of, going out at a $9 billion valuation. When we talked two years ago, it was going to be $47 billion. I'm surprised it's even going out at nine. That's higher than... Me too. I mean, and it made me think of two things. One of them is, aren't the feds are starting to investigate SPACs right now? Didn't they announce that last week that the Justice yeah. Department or the SEC or somebody's looking into these SPACs? Because you've always been really nervous about them. Sure. You know, I, I, every time we bring up SPACs, you go, well, you know, I'm not well, sure about these. Things. They are a vehicle to go public and some have done well by them, but some have lost a ton of money because they're exposed it when people finally sketchy. do the due diligence. Right. And, and they allow you to do less due diligence. And that's dangerous for investors. And, and you know, so, I mean, who's going to be out there just saying, ah, this is what I've been saving my stimulus money for to invest in WeWork stock? You know, who knows? I still wonder if that uh, startup team is still locked out of that WeWork's office. Remember? Yes, <laughs> with they the umbrella. Get in and they didn't know what to do. The umbrella blocked it. Yeah. They might have been the lucky uh, ones. Finally, uh, and you sent me this, so I know it's important to you. Uh, Prince Harry, uh, our favorite Duke of Sussex, has joined the San Francisco startup as chief impact officer which I understand means he never really has to go to the office. He just travels around and wears like a, and it's for better up. So he wears a better up t-shirt and talks about how, you know, self-improvement's a good thing. Uh, so he's finally got a job. Yeah, there you go. You know, well, Didn't take him that long if you think about it. Yeah, well, he's only 36. <laughs> Crosses uh, the pond, comes to Silicon Valley, gets a job at a tech startup. Isn't that the, the Windsor, old story? The Windsors have finally gotten off of unemployment. Uh, and I'm sure I'm sure Meghan Markle's just thrilled. So we'll Why end not? on that. 
This will be the crown season 14 Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. It's going to be 80 degrees this weekend, folks. Have fun.